0: but discomfort brings growth, and oftentimes, tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes, and join me as we begin our 1,000 Tiny Steps. Hey, everybody. Barb Higgins here on this sunny February day. I see we record podcasts on sunny February days lately. February 21st, this is episode 26 of a 1,000 Tiny Steps. So I've been having a hard time. The first two seasons for me were stories. Sort of every episode had like a beginning and an end or was a little part of a story. This season has been a chunk of my life, but not so much what was starting happening day to day, but events and how they affected me. And a lot of this is also framed in my reading of the book, The Body Keeps the Score, which I know I mention all the time. I'm sorry if you get sick of hearing about it. But it's one of those books that you can't sit down and read in a day. When I read fiction, I sit down and I read the book cover to cover. I have a very hard time not doing that, so so I don't read often because I I don't usually have time to spend the entire day reading a book. Having said that, this book has been tricky for me because it's, first of all, it's very sort of scientifically written, so you have to concentrate. It's not like easy reading. And then for me, so much of it hits home that it takes my breath away and I have to put the book down. This past week has been (laughs) tricky, tricky for a number of reasons. And I couldn't really put my finger on it in the beginning. I'm getting a lot done. Like I'm, I'm learning and growing as somebody that works on my own schedule. I've always really relied on an external schedule to keep me on track and on task. But even then, I'm a last minute Lucy. I wait until the last minute to finish things. I've been a bit overwhelmed with some work, things around the podcast, around I want to start a monthly newsletter and like an email, that sort of thing. And I want to get back to blogging, writing. These are things that it's time for me to do. And what do I do is I immediately fill my life with things that will make me too busy to do these things. And this past week or so has been eye-opening for me. I coach at a CrossFit gym. The owner and I aren't always on the same page around my role as a coach there. And it can be very, very troubling for me. So whenever anyone calls out, I immediately respond and say, yes, I'll do it. Because I love coaching. I love being in the gym. I love being around people. I love helping people succeed. Gets me out of my house a little bit. You know, and I'm very driven in the CrossFit community to coach. but. If I've already blocked out my day and a class becomes available because somebody's called out sick, really what I should do is not respond and not cover the class because I've already blocked out that period of time for something else. A couple of times I've done that now where I've chosen to go coach. So then I think to myself, okay, well then let me stop the podcast and not have an online presence and I'll just be a CrossFit coach. But that doesn't sit right with me either. So those kinds of things have been coming up. The other thing that has been coming up is I keep having a lot of cross references with things. I'll have a conversation with somebody about something or I'll read something in the book and then I'll go to a completely unrelated place and start talking with somebody and up comes that very same topic. Of course, a lot of this episode for me has talked about trauma and the trauma brain, how people like me who have gone through lots of trauma relate and function in life. And so yesterday I'm on the rower and with a good friend of mine, Pam, and we're talking along and she goes, you know what I found out? You know, that people that have traumatic childhoods really, really seek drama in their adult lives. They look for it. And I thought, oh, <laughs> that's my life right there. People think I seek drama, but I'm a drama queen and I want it. And really, so I explained to her that, yes, that's very true, but it's not that they want the drama because they thrive on it. It's the only thing that, that they're familiar with. So it calms them down. Lots and lots of times people that have been raised in chaos need to keep chaotic. It's the only way they, they have a sense of how to function and how to be okay in it. Once it gets too quiet, everything falls apart. And it's like the stories I told about the, the Vietnam vets that would commit crimes to commemorate their, the days their friends all died, or you know, the sexually abused little girl that grows up and does drugs and sleeps with 50 people or is a hooker or a prostitute, because why would they do that? Well, they're recreating the trauma because it's how they function. And it, it really, it's so logical to me when I look at some of the things I've done in my life, and it makes no sense to somebody that doesn't have this kind of trauma, a really traumatic event. And not everyone recreates it, but we recreate things that make those feelings arise because we're used to those feelings. So for me, the way I dealt with my abuse as a child was to get crazy busy and be frenetic. And what have I done my whole entire life? Just gone from one thing to the next to the next. So in my growth as a podcaster and hopefully an online presence and maybe a public speaker one day, you know, the foundation leader for a foundation in honor of my daughter these are things that are important to me. And in the journey of doing this on my own, what I find is that to the outward eye, it looks like I do everything I can to sabotage progress. 50 other things come up. It was in the fall that my friend Amy said to me, you always have something that you have to work on first before you can do the next thing. It really got me thinking, like, my goodness, that's true. I'm, I'm always, I always have something else that I need to finish first before I can start. And I catch myself now, I catch myself in this language because oftentimes how we talk, can dictate how we act. Before I get started, started, I have redid my notes here. I want to talk a little bit about the coincidences that I've been having lately that I think they aren't. So I talked about The Blind Side and that movie has now been on TV. Like every time I'm, I'm channel surfing, there's The Blind Side on like five different movie channels. Now, I know that's just a coincidence, but I had just talked about The Blind Side. Boom, there it is. In looking at all the coincidences that, that seem to come up in my life, the conversation at the gym, and it's the same thing. You know, I'm starting this CrossFit class for people that might not want to do a lot of barbell lifting. And I've met like four new clients and four new people interested in CrossFit, and all of them would be a great match for this class. So I started thinking about all these, you know, the blindside thing. How is this all happening? And there's actually a syndrome, a phenomenon called the Bader Meinhoff phenomenon. And what it is, is it explains why all of a sudden we keep seeing the same thing over and over. So you have a conversation with your mother and you go, I think I want to buy an orange car. And you go and look at cars and you buy an orange car and then you see orange cars everywhere. You never saw them before. And now you see them all the time. So I talked about the blind side and I put the TV on and now all I see in the in the guide is the blind side, the blind side. That could be looked at as like a really strange coincidence. So like, oh, my God, that's so weird. I remember when I first found out I was pregnant. Suddenly I saw pregnant people everywhere. It's like, wow, I didn't know everyone was pregnant. Before I did the episode about the blind side, I hadn't really thought about that movie for a long time. So it wasn't present in my subconscious. It wasn't like floating around my quiet mind while I was doing other things. It was nowhere. So I talk about it. So now it's in my mind. It's a present memory. So then I go on the TV. Oh, the blind side, the blind side. So the more I see it, the more I think about it, the more I see it. So, you know, oh, I'm pregnant. So now I'm thinking about pregnancy. Now I notice other people who are pregnant. I might not have even noticed them before or it might not have mattered to me. So that's an actual phenomenon. And so I found that this happens all the time with me. The other little thing that comes to mind is, you know, I have my trusty cell phone all the time, right? And they listen to us, you know? So sometimes I think, you know, I have a conversation or record a podcast and then all these things in the podcast suddenly show up in my feed and I realize, okay. (laughs) So anyway, but that's been big lately. I'm having all these conversations and talking about all these things. And then I run into people I've talked about or I see something on TV that's similar to what I just spoke about or talked about with somebody. It's been really, really intense for me. The other thing that's been intense for me here in the past couple of weeks, and actually in the whole process of doing this this podcast, is I'm spending a lot of time outwardly talking about traumatic things, talking about having Jack, talking about losing Molly, talking about Roy, talking about losing my job. These are things that I've just shut my mouth and tried to just carry on. And I have so many other things I could talk about. I have a lot to say about my own depression and postpartum depression. I have a lot to say about substance abuse, alcohol and drugs for me. There is so much to talk about, but what happens is each conversation brings you back to that reality and, and acts as a trigger. I remember shortly after Molly died when I was really, really, really struggling, Roy was trying to help me and he just said, look, you just have to, it's been six weeks, you have to get up. Enough time has passed. You have to clean your house. You have to move on. Like six weeks. I, I think of having my foot cut off. I couldn't walk on my stump in six weeks. It would take such a long time to be able to put a prosthetic foot on there and, and walk around. And it's six weeks after Molly's death. I was still sitting perfectly still. I remember just not being able to to manage that. But over time, that's basically what you kind of have to do to move on in life. When you have a trauma and then a trauma memory or trauma experience, you sort of live this dual existence now where you kind of fake it till you make it on one side and you're constantly reliving the trauma on the other. And they're equally as pervasive in in your consciousness and they sort of dictate everything you do. So I've had a rough couple of weeks. I don't really know where to go with the podcast. I don't feel like I'm telling a linear story anymore. I don't want to be boring. I don't want to be a lecturer. I don't want to tell people to do what I did. You know, I want to think of stories to tell and stories of my life. And I have plenty. If you're listening and you know me and you can think of a story I should tell, let me know because I'll tell it. So I've had a bit of an emotionally tough week. It's been emotionally tough here as well because as I process through all this, of course, Kenny lives here. Gracie's at Disney. You know, I don't know that she listens to these podcasts, but I know that her friends do. I know that people talk about them. Lots and lots of things get brought up to the surface. I remember having someone tell me that I shouldn't talk about things so much because it reopens the wound. And that has been really the story of my life. I actually was out for dinner with a friend of mine a couple of weeks ago, and, and her advice was that maybe I was telling too much on the podcast, that I didn't have to say the whole story. Be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. Just sort of an interesting phenomenon for me. One of my biggest issues as a child was being always being told to be quiet. I had adults in my life, don't tell your mother this, don't tell your father this, and don't tell so-and-so this, and don't tell so-and-so that. And All these people telling me not to tell. And then walking around as the owner of everybody's secrets. I'm the keeper of the secrets now. And then if I did accidentally say something and it caused a problem, somehow it was my fault, even though it wasn't my secret, even though it didn't have anything to do with me necessarily. So all of these things are coming up for me, this dual existence. I put on a good face in a CrossFit gym and I'm happy and I'm coaching. And I am happy, but I have so much going on in my head. I wake up in the morning and that that's a hard time for anyone that's trauma-related. You have about a millisecond of being okay. And then you're right back into all of a sudden you remember everything bad that's going on. You know, I have Jack and and how do I create a good life for him? And we all sort of fall into habits of behavior. And, and Kenny is like, oh, we can do this again. We can be the fluffy family. And I don't feel like a fluffy family at all. I think that would be very disingenuous of me for people to think that we're OK. We're not OK. Are we unsafe for a child? No, we're wonderful parents. Jack is the happiest baby in the history of happy babies. And he brings happiness to us I and mean, to all who meet him. But this process, this podcast process, I guess this episode is about me explaining to you how it makes me feel and what comes up for me. I also have so many connections, connections to prior episodes that things come back again and again. Life is just so cyclical. But a lot of it comes from this chapter in the book, and this is where I'll get started. So this chapter is called The Unbearable Heaviness of Remembering. And late in my last episode, I said, this is what the theme of this podcast is, but we didn't, we didn't call it that because when, when I listened to that podcast as a whole, That didn't seem like a logical title. That's what this one should be called, The Unbearable Heaviness of Remembering. In The Body Keeps the Score, they talk about traumatic memory versus regular memory. And they had a bunch of people come in that had had something traumatic happen. And first they were asked, please recall a memory that you will remember for the rest of your life, but that's not traumatic. You know, of course, what comes to mind for me would be the births of Gracie and Molly. I can think back to them, I remember with Gracie, the weather was warm. It was like the end of April. It was like a summer day. I fell asleep on the porch. I went into labor at night. We were watching Boston Public. My water broke in the bathroom. We had just eaten eggs and bacon. When we got to the hospital at 10 o'clock, I threw it all up. Labored from about 10 p.m. until about 2 a.m. And then I pushed from 2 to 3, and then Gracie was born. I had popsicles. Danielle was my nurse. Dr. Salchunas delivered the baby. You know, I have wonderful memories of that night. And when I met remember it, I'm sitting here in my couch telling you about it. With Molly, same time frame but opposite. I went into labor at eight in the morning. It was freezing cold because it was the beginning of April. I was in the hospital by myself in the morning for a while, going through labor pains. So I went into active labor in the afternoon, pushed and pushed right around three o'clock. Out came Molly. She was a bit different. My labor stopped. My contractions lessened. I had to have Pitocin. Out she came and had a lot of stitches. And that was a very different experience for me. But I remember with minute detail, the chronology of it. The same with Jack's birth, waking up and, Drinking the coffee and am I having a baby and what? And then him coming out and then having lunch and how easy in many ways that delivery process and that birth was. So those are non-traumatic memories. They tend to be big things, a vacation, a roller coaster ride, a wedding. You know, the the kinds of things in your life that you remember easily and chronologically and you can tell the story. And then there's traumatic memories. So a traumatic memory is unbelievably different because traumatic memories, I'm gonna look at some notes here. Traumatic memories are very, very disorganized. They don't have a beginning and an end. They have typically a traumatic memory starts with a vision or a smell or a sound that then creates that piece of the memory. But that isn't always the beginning of the memory. Sometimes what happens is the middle of the memory. If I close my eyes and go back to time, I'm abused, little flashes come. But what happens is I physically respond to the flashes of memory. Like right now talking about it, my neck gets all sketchy and and I get panicky and my heart's racing. I'm like, no, 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 not again, not again. But that's not the beginning of a memory. I don't remember the day of the week. I don't always remember necessarily the dates. I know generalities. As I sit and think now that it's, you know, 50 years ago, I have a much calmer, more detached memory and ability to chronologically remember the abuse. But at the time, it's all over the place. When I think of my job loss, when I go to losing my job, I immediately think of, an email I got two months into this fiasco accusing me of yet one more thing and one more meeting and and just this utter panic. I was wearing this dress, this floral dress, and it was just, I was a mess. And I cried and cried at school and I went home and, oh, it was terrible. That's what comes to mind first, to go back and find the beginning and tell it through, I'm not there at all yet with the job loss at all. It will come. And traditional therapy has always sort of aimed to take the traumatic memory and put it together and parcel it out and that somehow going through the memory will heal it. Well, it doesn't. Remembering the trauma isn't what helps the person who suffered it cope with, heal from, and move along with the trauma. It's the event and the trauma are two different things. And this is where in my therapy around Molly, EMDR was so helpful because it wasn't focusing on the death in the hospital of Molly. I couldn't drive by that hospital. It was focusing on how the hospital made me feel. What do you feel right now? Where do you feel it? And then you focus on that. And then you work through those feelings. Then you assign something else to think about or a different way to feel as you drive by. And so I can drive by the hospital now. Sometimes I still have reactions, but it's not this guttural sense of anger and panic that paralyzes me. It's just very different. This week, I've had several flashbacks to Molly's death. Weird things will precipitate a memory for me. I know like the smell of a track that you run on a hot summer day. Forever and always bring me back to Winnicott High School in the class L meet my senior year because it was just a hot, sunny day and the track just had a smell to it. It just, you could smell the rubber and rubber tracks are relatively new then. So it was a distinct smell. That is the memory that comes with that smell again and again and again. If when I smell cigarette smoke, I think of Ellie Dore, because you know, a pack of palm oils, Jackie, my friend Jackie and I would go get Ellie cigarettes all the time. You know, and I think of my Grammy Higgins when I think of cigarettes as well. Those two were smokers. And so there's a smell that evokes a memory or a connection. And that's how traumatic memories are. So when I look at the unbearable heaviness of remembering, it talks a lot about how different a trauma patient is, as opposed to a sort of a classically depressed or anxious, or maybe somebody born with a brain imbalance, mental illness, that they really have it for no reason. There isn't a trauma involved. And it's just incredibly different. And it actually goes so far to say that maybe the diagnosis is trauma. It isn't ADHD. It isn't depression. It isn't anxiety. It isn't bipolar. You know, it isn't any of these things. What it actually is, is traumatic response. Everybody does what they need to do to respond to that trauma. So I know as a little kid for me, the feeling of my body when when I would go back into the memory of the abuse just makes me feel gross. And so I needed to do something. I need to be busy so I wouldn't be thinking about my body. So I did violin and I did choir and I did all these different physical things, not necessarily sports, but things that would keep me busy and moving around and with people. I still do that now. If I can't work out for a few days, I start to get a little mental in my head. (laughs) And that the actual physical reality of moving around helps me to organize my thoughts. So some of the things that have triggered me, all the discussions about Molly, and those come from this new TV show that is out. It's on YouTube. Now it's done by Hearst television and it's all about me and having Jack and all that went in. It goes in great deal detail about Molly. It brings into detail Rachel hunger whose kidney lives in Kenny right now. It was just this incredible, they did an incredible job, but you know, I watch it and I watch myself telling a story and crying. You know, then Kenny tells the story of when we found out Molly wasn't going to wake up and how nuts I went, you know, and the guttural screaming and peeing my pants and all. These things are coming up and coming up and they just create triggers. Trying to, to really solidify the Molly B Foundation. I think one of the reasons that's hard for me is it's just one more trigger that if we have a foundation for her, then she really is dead. And I know it's almost six years. I should know that she's dead. But it just doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way with trauma like this. So it's put me in a very, very tricky, tricky state. Again, back to my little coincidences, my little phenomenon here. So I'm reading this chapter about the unbearable heaviness of remembering and I'm in a time period right now with everything I'm doing, working with Jace on the podcast and the online presence. I want to start a blog and a newsletter, like an email. And, you know. And this is all going to bring up many things for me, which I think is part of the process for me. This whole thousand tiny steps is to figure out if I can to put some peace in my mind, where did it all start? And maybe I'll never know but I'm learning so much on the way anyway that's been super helpful. So normal memories you recall them as you stay in the present and traumatic memories you dissociate. You're not here at all anymore, you are actually in the place where the trauma occurred. And this is an amazing delineation for me because it's exactly right. If you ask me to explain finding out about Molly, I remember crawling on the table. I don't remember. I know that I came home and went back and I don't know why I did that, but I did. Then I went back and I couldn't find them and they were in the ICU and then we found out and then the table and, and then we came back home again and then we drove to the hot. Like, I don't remember. I remember the purple of the sky as I walked up my street and called Roy on the phone at like four in the morning to say, she's dead. She's dead. She's dead. She's dead. And him just like, oh my God. And then getting back in the car and I did a Facebook post. Like, I remember these specific pieces of it. And when I think of the week, I have to really think to remember what happened on what day. Fortunately, we have pictures. We have so many pictures. It's like a scrapbook of the week. can help me put it together, but my memory isn't always the same. That's another thing with memory in general. And with traumatic memory, it can be even worse. So when an event occurs, the minute somebody tells the story of it, the memory has already changed. Because if I tell the story, I'm telling it with my vocabulary, my choice of words, my descriptions, which come from my emotions and my perspective. Gracie could sit next to me and see the same thing. And what she would tell somebody would be totally different because what stood out to her what resonates with her in a memory or an event might not be what resonates with me. This is what makes history so tricky. And I think why people feel they need to control it. Because really a history book is only factual to the person who wrote it because it's their perspective and their storytelling of the event. And what gets brought to the top and what gets added in later comes from their understanding of what's important. In having all these triggers and things come up, I really, I really, really understand now how much of my, my life, my silly life is, lived in a traumatic state. So I have a really significant one, quite honestly. So last episode, I talked about being ready to put the winter coats in a bin and maybe hang up the costumes in the hallway into a closet and, you know, that I'm getting better at things. So we have this big bit of lunch boxes. And so I've been washing them, you know, and most of them have been empty. Molly's lunchbox that she was using still sits in the butcher block where she put it. We've moved it a few times, but. But I had these two lunch boxes, a pink one and a green one. And they, they were sixth and eighth grade, Molly and Gracie. they have been in the bottom of my hamper for months. And so I pulled them out. And I chucked them in the washer. I'm like, oh, I better check the zipper pocket. So I opened the zipper pocket of Gracie's, which was the green one. And there's a cupcake wrapper that's flat, flat and stiff, stiff. And it was a Funfetti cupcake. It's, you can still see on the colored dots. I'm like, Funfetti, gosh, that was eighth grade for her. This is that, huh. And so of course it went back to like this time of year, February, March, maybe Valentine's Day and all this. So I'm like, oh, right. They got Funfetti at their play. So I opened up Molly's Lunchbox zipper packet. There's three hallway passes. All with her name on it water water locker there's a script of the play with things highlighted and directions and notes on the back i had made a map of our house for her because she had to make one at school and she couldn't she had a hard time looking down on things in her mind seeing things from the top so she wanted to draw it like this how do you draw the how do you draw it so i drew the house i just remember i'm in the bathroom at this time that's my washer and dryer and jack jack's crawling around the floor and we're just doing laundry i'm talking to him and The pulling those things out and touching in my hand, something that had been in that zipper pocket since 2015, since Molly and Gracie were in sixth and eighth grade. Now, Gracie lives at Disney now. That's a long time ago. It decimated me. I started sobbing, like sobbing, like utterly, utterly sobbing. Thinking about it now, it just makes me go back. makes me go where Molly was alive. I remember that spring and they were both in Bugsy Malone and they all had these different little roles and they loved it. They loved it. Molly opened the play. I did all this food for breakfast. I know here I am bawling about it. It happened seven years ago. But but the look, touching in my hand and looking and knowing that she put those things in there, that her hands put them in there, it just took me back. So was I traumatized that spring? No, but it took me back to a place before the trauma where I thought everything was okay. When my belief system around my life and my future was completely different than what it would end up being, there would always be a Molly in it. Molly would still be here. Why wouldn't she be? She's my child. <laughs> Okay, so I think if I need to explain any more the difference between a normal memory and a traumatic one, this is it. And I want to apologize, but I listened to a podcast yesterday about not apologizing. Why do we apologize when we cry? So I'm not going to apologize, even though I really want to. But I've had a couple of those episodes, but that one was profound. I just, I just, I put everything back. There was a plastic spoon, this red plastic spoon that they used to use for their yogas. They got them somewhere. There was a dum-dum's lollipop and Molly always got bubble gum and she'd bring it home for me in there and that was from dance. And so poor little Jack is just looking at his mother who's lost her mind. And I pulled it together and I zipped them back up and they're just on the shelf now in my closet and that's where they'll stay for a long while. It was just profound. At the same time, my sister Johanna came over and took a dresser out of the closet that Molly and Gracie shared. So she asked for that dresser back a couple of years ago and I couldn't do it. It was all still the same as when Molly, Gracie and I weren't ready to go through the clothes yet. Gracie and I have done all that. We've gone through every drawer. Gone through the clothes, saved what we want to save, gotten rid of what we want to get rid of. We've done it. It's all set. The dresser was completely different. Having said that, I opened the drawer and the paper underneath the clothes, you know, the paper you put in the bottom of a drawer, was Hello Kitty. And I remember Johanna being so excited that she couldn't wait because Molly and Johanna were tight, tight, tight. Molly loved Hello Kitty. They both did. But Johanna was so excited because she knew that Molly and Gracie would love the fact that her drawers had Hello Kitty. So Johanna was so sweet. She saw me get upset. She, she reacted with me. No problem. Do you want to keep the paper? No, no, I want the paper in the dresser. So the dresser is now in her apartment, which makes me so happy because it's hers. It was hers when she lived here, and then she moved away and didn't eat it, and then she needed it, and I couldn't give it to her. Unbelievable! Unbelievable! Two of those two things happened in the same day. So it's a process here, and this whole process of trying to create a cogent program online, a podcast, a blog, a way to help people is horribly difficult for me sometimes, and I wonder why am I doing this except I can't just sit back and watch TV and sit with a baby and, and not do anything. I have, to, I have to make sure there's meaning for him and for me, and there has to be meaning in this. So that's been really, really significant for me. The doctors here, these trauma doctors too, also realize that oftentimes you can study things from afar. You want to see what a, how a medicine works, you put it into a laboratory rat and you watch them. Trauma's not that way. You can You can look at a lot of people, and by looking at them, sort of get information that you can apply across a a wide variety of demographics. And with trauma, what the doctors really concluded is the only way to understand trauma is to sit in the shoes of a traumatized person, to really, really listen and watch and see what they go through in their trauma. The other piece with traumatic memories is they trigger flashbacks, like I just had with the the flashback to the lunchbox, which flashed me back to that spring and, and their play rehearsals and how much fun they had and how they just felt like they'd arrived and life was so good. But so now I've remembered it and that doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to be any more over it today than I was yesterday or before it happened. Lots and lots of times top therapy can calm things down, but truly traumatic situations aren't necessarily cured ever. What's cured is the trauma, not the situation. You can't undo what happened. You can just cope with the trauma. So remembering the trauma does not necessarily resolve it. Trauma memories are disjointed and disassociated and they're not linear. They're not easy to tell. They can be overwhelming, unbelievable, and unbearable. And I would say that in that moment in the bathroom, when I, when I realized what I was holding in my hand, it was all of those things. The emotions overwhelm me. Still, it's a s- stupid piece of paper. It's unbelievable that it's been in there for seven years. She's actually really gone. And that seven years feels like two minutes and a century at the same time. And then unbearable. Like, why do I have to have this life? I can't live this way the rest of my life. But Molly's never coming back. So a part of me will live this way the rest of my life. Oh, that's really Really, really hard to take sometimes. And then it talked about flashbacks. Time is folded and warped. In our physical world, things have a beginning and an end. There's numbers. Everything is finite until you get out of space and then it goes forever. And then here comes the infinite. But so the hard part with uh, flashbacks is that they don't match time. They're not linear. They fold over each other. They overlap. Some parts are loud, some parts aren't. And they get triggered not by like a logical question or a cognitive thought, but by something like a smell or a sound or a word or something you see. There was a woman who woke up in her surgery and felt the surgery, but she couldn't move because she was under anesthesia, but she felt the pain. And for a long time, she couldn't ride in an elevator with anyone in an elevator because she got in an elevator with doctors and it freaked her out. She had all these things that she could no longer do because of the trauma. And she couldn't even remember all the details of what happened to her. She just knew she had this trauma. Treating trauma, as I said before, it's very, very different. So you have overwhelming, unbelievable, and unbearable is the emotions that go around a traumatic memory or a flashback. To treat these things, you have to look at the way, all the ways that the trauma is experienced, so physical. So for me, Molly traumas, I tighten up right away, I start crying, I get into a sense of disbelief, my stomach hurts, I start to cry, I can't not cry. So socially, my immediate reaction is I wanna talk to somebody that will understand. So I reach out to other mothers that have lost kids. Oh my gosh, I shared this story, and got like 20 responses. That all are exactly like this with different items or different circumstances. I read books like The Body Keeps the Score to see what can I do to do a better job of coping with this. I take a deep breath and look around. And then there's the psychological piece. And I don't have a therapist right now, which probably probably should, but I know that when I was in therapy after Molly died, my therapist was so helpful in unraveling all of this for me, separating out the events themselves and the trauma that they cause. Two very separate things, really, really profound for me. As I sit here on February 21st really not back into the flow of recording these podcasts as I was in the very beginning. I'm really struggling with what am I supposed to do with all this? If I had to describe myself right now, I'd say I'm overwhelmed and I can't believe I'm in this situation and I can't really bear it anymore. (laughs) Here's Barbara worst, right? There's just so much, there's so much good that can come from all of this. In my little podcast, I talk about how sometimes in the worst of times is when you find the greatest joy and the greatest revelations come from the worst hurt. And I hold on to that because I, I do know in my, in my journey with losing Molly and having Jack that both of those things are true. Both of those things are incredibly true. Another thing that comes to mind for me a lot in my behavior right now is my self sabotage behavior. So self-sabotage, what does that mean? So when I look back on my running career, I had a lot of talent, but I also fought asthma. And so really for me, I should have never, ever drank alcoholic party. I should have followed a really strict diet. I should have Really, really lived a physically healthy life, and I did not. I partied on the weekends. I, you know, I did all sorts of things. I did not live a, an athletic life off the field. I never missed a practice. I showed up hungover. I do repeats and puke. I never ever missed a practice I was supposed to be at. But I showed up hungover and I didn't eat well and all of those things. Self sabotage. So why, when I'm getting, why when I get so close to something being good, do I trash it? This is a very, very common external judgment of people with trauma brain and how they function. I know for me. Anything, when everything gets too good or too calm, that's when I begin to panic. And I don't think I consciously look for a way to fuck it up. I get panicky and anxious. And once you're panicky and anxious, then you start making spontaneous decisions that are emotionally based and not intellectually or cognitively based. And I can look back over my life and see, see it this way. You know, at the time I jumped in to help Roy, my life was very, very even keel at the time. I had just finished a sabbatical. You know, my job was secure. I actually was feeling like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm going to be one of those teachers that does the same thing for 30 years not knowing I only had a year left. Again, not knowing what was coming, but but my my decision to jump into a friendship and then a relationship with him was unbelievably impulsive on many emotional levels. Well thought out in some ways, but really, truly a trauma-based decision. There are two sayings that come to mind for me. And I learned one of them, one of them was just a therapist, mine, and one of them was in AA, and also with KK. So the first one is, if you find yourself in a hole, Stop digging. So, oh my God, I'm in a hole. I'm in a hole. I need to get out. But you keep digging because you think if you dig, you'll find a way out. The digging can represent what you're doing that got you in the hole in the first place. So, you need to stop doing whatever that is. I have an incredibly hard time putting the shovel down, putting the shovel down and really stepping back and looking at what the problem is. I get into this panicky mode of I just need to fix it. I don't want to think about it. I want to stay busy. Everything will be fine. And just that mode of thought comes back again and again in each. Period of my life where I had trauma. The other one is the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. So, what comes to mind for me on this is this TV show, Mom. One of the characters, Christy, is a compulsive gambler and she gambles and loses money. Okay, this time I'll win. And she eventually loses money. She thinks if she keeps gambling, eventually she'll win. Now, I know some people do win at gambling and whatever, but the mindset is the same. No, I can't give up yet. I can't give up. I know if I just keep doing it, it it will happen. It will be right. I think anyone that's listening to me, I think if my podcast editor listening is probably going, "Oh yeah, that makes sense." <laughs> Put the shovel down, Barb, and get to work. So, in looking at my last couple of weeks and looking at the challenges I'm facing and where to go from here and what to talk about from here, all of these things come up. My first thoughts are just, you know, oh, I'll fill my schedule. So one of those things about self sabotage. So I'm not, I'm not getting drunk all the time now, but like I had blocked off a chunk of time for this podcast a couple of times over the weekend and this morning, and each day. I chose to do something else, equally meaningful, but not what I needed to do to succeed here. I have to stop and say, Barbara Jean Higgins, what are you doing? And so I'm inviting all of you to listen to this gobbledygook because I feel sometimes that, you know, you look at reality TV and all you see is what the producer wants you to see. And if anything, I want this podcast to be authentic. I want you to finish a podcast someday and go, oh my God, please don't ever record one like that again. (laughs) I won't be hurt because that's life. We have the good and the bad and all that sort of thing. Another huge piece of the trauma healing piece and the not talking too much piece. So I mentioned how in my life, I was always told to be quiet and I have recreated for my life, for myself many times, things I'm doing that I'm not supposed to tell. I have had so many secrets in my life here and there over time, and it's never been helpful. So one of the biggest things that has also come to me in reading about trauma, when I'm explaining about how when you share a memory, your perspective comes into the memory and alters the memory. So five people see the same thing and it's all different. So another saying that comes up for me here is culture shapes the expression of traumatic stress. It's 1976 when I tell my mother, okay, I'm being sexually abused and I would like it to stop. And I'm told to be quiet. Do not say anything, it will cause trouble, it will cause more trouble, people won't believe you. All the reasons why not only did it happen to me, but it was now my burden and my secret to keep that I had to protect everybody, me, the victim. Today. If a child went to a mother with this confession, mothers have to do the right things. And oftentimes families like this, they keep their secrets. But if this, if this were to come out now in any public way or any educational way, law enforcement would be called, the child would be removed, like steps would be taken immediately to ensure that this didn't happen again. Well, one would hope. It was just a very, very different. And that's not because my abuse was any worse or better than abuse today. It was just how society and culture looked at it. Trauma itself wasn't even recognized, and still isn't recognized, like on insurance forms. If I were to say I need to have this medicine because I have trauma, well, no, you need to have one of these disorders, and there are all these disorders that are put into, into insurance companies. My mother had a syndrome called fibromyalgia, and for a long time, people thought she was faking it. That doesn't even exist; it's not real, you know. And she had to come up with something else to try to get a treatment, you know. Now you see TV commercials for medication for fibromyalgia, so clearly it was something. But we live in a culture that defines how we are told to respond to things. You know, I had a foot operation on my right foot in 1983, and that was a cast for six weeks and crutches. I had the same operation 10 years later on my left foot, and I was walking on it in a week. We as a culture learn and grow. And the same is true in how we process trauma and grief. And I noticed this with my lost daughter. You know, Coach Ludi lost a four-year-old in 1955 or so. You know, they never talked about it. I didn't know about it until Molly died. Now I found out about it. They didn't talk about it, you just didn't. A girl on my track team in Bo, my cross country team, her mother had lost her sister when they were teeny tiny. And her grandparents still cry about that. They still cry, you know, 50 years later, they still cry, of course you do. But they didn't, there was no online, there was no, you had to go to a support group in person, but there weren't very many. It was just such a different reality. And I can't imagine, I can't imagine living, I'm showing my cell phone here if you can't see I can't imagine living without this because in this cell phone are hundreds of women and men, but women for me that have gone through what I go through. What I want to close with is that what I come to at the end of this week of, you know, huge fight with Kenny and frustration over lack of sleep and not being comfortable with my position at my CrossFit gym and having a sore shoulder for most of the week, you know, knowing I have a foot operation coming up and flying to Utah next week to thank the hospital for keeping me healthy enough to have Jack and all these things that are existing in me were coming up for me wanting to be solid and ready to have a solid newsletter and email presence and, and start blogging again and get that damn foundation put together. Like I look at all this and I get utterly overwhelmed and I realize that I have to put the shovel down. Like right now, I just have to put the shovel down and get these things done, continue in a way that's meaningful and helpful for me. I have to stop thinking that things will work this time if I keep living the life I'm living. And if this has been a hard, hard adjustment for me a really hard adjustment. I just keep thinking I can make it work. I can do it. I can make it work. And there are things, big changes I need to make and things I need to continue doing and things I need to stop doing. And when I have the morning blocked off to do something and because I have it blocked off and it means I'm home and doesn't mean I can now go and coach a CrossFit class. As much as I want to do both, I have to really put together a schedule where I do them when I'm supposed to do them and I do them well. And I have a bit better, more manageable schedule. And why does that scare the crap out of me? I do not know, but it does. So I'm going to leave us on that. Jack, Jack, as we speak, is adorable. Standing on his own two little feet with no hands. He is the cutest thing ever. He's got two teeth down here and he's growing two top teeth. He was 11 months yesterday. So he's almost one. That's amazing. I'm back down to my pre-pregnancy weight, which is still about 10 pounds more than I want it to be, but that's okay. Who cares? (laughs) Working out as much as I can, heading into foot surgery and such. Thank you for listening. I hope between my wonderful editor and my ability to talk cohesively sometimes that this episode makes sense and that it's helpful. That's always the big deal that it's helpful. And I do reach out. I have friends that people that listen that have known me for a long time. And I really, if there's a connection for you or a question you want answered or something that I can talk about, please reach out and I'll incorporate them into a podcast in a heartbeat. If you live in a warm place, get outside. If you live in a cold place, stay warm. Take care of yourself. Do something nice for somebody, but first do it for yourself. I used to end my beginning podcast that way. What's a nice thing you can do for yourself? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, as I always say, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Times Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore four 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 on Facebook as Barb Higgins and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.